been coming at the book of Revelation now for 107, uh, 107 shots, believe it or not, and we've finally made ourselves to Revelation chapter 14, and what is really just kind of mind-boggling, even to me, if you will, is the fact that we have spent the last 20 weeks on a little phrase that we find in Revelation chapter 14, in verse 4, in the middle of the verse, the, the phrase is all about something that was characteristic of a group of people that's called the 144,000. And when you look in the middle of verse 4 of Revelation 14, it says this, These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. And I know that if you're, maybe you're here for the first time and you're reading that little phrase, you're thinking, yeah, yeah, that's a nice little phrase. They follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. But as I was just as I was reading that in preparing for preaching to this group of people that God has called me to minister to every week that phrase just just jumped out at me and the reason that it did is because it is so uncharacteristic of the people that are living in the day and age when you and I are living we are living in right now what biblically would be called the Laodicean church period now, again, if you're here for the first time, that really means nothing to you. But back in Revelation 2 and 3, when we were coming through those two chapters, what we found is our Lord wrote seven letters to seven churches that really existed in Asia Minor at the time when John the Apostle wrote this, around 95 A.D., somewhere right in there. And the letters that our Lord was writing to those churches addressed very real needs that were going on in those churches situations that were really going on back in 95 AD and yet put into the context of the whole of the book of Revelation what we found about those seven letters is they represented seven periods of church history that picks up where the book of history in the New Testament leaves off that would be the book of Acts it picks up where Acts leaves off and it takes us all the way through up to the rapture which is found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, as soon as the, that last letter representing that last church period comes to an end, that last letter is written to the Laodiceans. So in a broad sense, we're living right now in this period of time that God says is the Laodicean church period. Something interesting about the word Laodicea is that the word means the rights of the people. The rights of the people and what we began to see is that God is through that word even just giving you a, a broad description of how he looks at the church in this last period and as he, he looks at it what he sees is that people are clamoring for their rights and yet as we were just singing about Jesus said if anybody is going to come to me he's going to have to deny himself you see, and it goes just totally contrary to what God says is, is characteristic of Laodiceans. We're thinking in terms of ourselves. In fact, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, we love ourselves. And, and this whole thing of following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, well, Jesus says if you're going to follow, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. And what we began to see is we need, God to do some major things in us to get us to understand what it really means to follow him because the truth is there's lots of people today that are claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ that have never denied themselves and on a daily basis do not take up their cross 
And Jesus says, if you don't do those two things, you can't follow. And so we've, we've come through, as you can see, and, and this doesn't even represent all that we've been through in the past 20 weeks uh, on the review there. But what we've come to is a, a Laodicean prescription of how it can actually be that we can do those things, that we can deny ourselves, take up our cross, be crucified with Christ, and follow him. And I'd like to ask you to turn back, if you would, to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. And I think this crystallizes it and will get all of us back into the flow of, of, of thought about the things that we, we've talked about. If as believers in these last days, okay, now listen very carefully. If as believers in these last days, in this Laodicean church period, if we are really going to follow the Lamb, we began to see that there's some things that we're going to have to do. Number one, we must get honest with God. We must get honest with God, which is a rare thing for Laodiceans to do. Because what Jesus says in the letter written to the Laodicean church period is he says, you, you've got this problem. You think one thing is true about yourself, but he says it's not really true. In fact, the exact opposite is true. You think you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing in a spiritual sense. And he says, and I look and, I, and what I see is the fact that though you think that's true, you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And so what we, we've, we've done, first of all, is just that if we're ever really going to experience what God intended for us to experience as his followers, we first and foremost are going to have to get honest with ourselves about our condition before God. And in Philippians chapter 3, I, I think this crystallizes it. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. L listen, y'all, you know why Laodiceans get confused about their condition before God? The reason we get confused about it is because we want that. As Laodiceans, by and large, we truly want to know Christ and we want to know him intimately. We really do. And, and because we really want to know him, you know what we'll do? I mean, we'll, we'll find out, that, you know, there's some great teacher on the, the radio, and man, we'll plug into that every single day. We hear about some conference somewhere, and we're clamoring to get to the conference. We're buying books, we're buying tapes, we're attending conferences and seminars. We'll do anything in the world, man, that we may know him. And the next part of it, he says, and the power of his resurrection. You know, I'm telling you, as Laodiceans, man, we want that. We really, genuinely do. And again, now this is why we get confused about our condition. Because we're thinking, I really want to know Christ. Oh God, I want to know you. And not just know you, I want to know the power of your resurrection. We pray that, and we genuinely believe in our hearts that we believe that. And we'll do all of these things, we'll go to all the conferences, read all the books, listen to all the tapes, we just won't do or invite the Lord to allow us to do the next part of verse 10. Not just knowing him, not just knowing the power of his resurrection, but the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. And, and, and when we ended last time, 
what I, what I was trying to, to show you is that here we are, and as Laodiceans, we all want the abundant life that Jesus talked about. We genuinely want that. But what we're seeing here is that if we're going to have the abundant life, then I, I think that a great definition of it would be the first part of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. You know what it's all about? It's all about knowing him and experiencing the power of his resurrection. And buddy, we want that. So to have the abundant life, we've got to have the power of his resurrection. And the deal is, y'all, you don't get it from listening to tapes. You don't get it from reading books. You don't get it from having morning devotions, though that may be part of it. You experience the power of his resurrection because you... Do you know the next word? Say it. Hello? You experience the power of his resurrection because you die. And until you die, you can never be resurrected. And, and here are Laodiceans, and we want the power of his resurrection without dying. It doesn't come that way. Had Jesus never died, he would have never risen from the dead. Duh. And yet, somehow it doesn't connect with us Laodiceans, does it? It doesn't connect that if we're going to know the resurrection power of Christ in our life, that we're going to have to come to the place that we die. And so what we did is we look in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. What we began to see is what led to our Lord's death. It's clearly defined for you right there. And, and what we've been trying to, to get into our minds is this. If there was something that led to our Lord's death on the cross, are we thinking that we're any different than Him? Are we thinking that we're going to be able to experience His death and ultimately the power of His resurrection in a way that He could not do it? And what we, what we see here in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 is that our Lord Jesus Christ, what, what it was that led to his death is that he humbled himself. And that's the second thing that's going to have to happen for us Laodiceans. Number one, we're going to have to get honest with God about our condition. But then secondly, we're going to have to humble ourselves before God. And over the course of the last several weeks, what we've been doing is I've been trying to show you biblically what is a, a definition of humility. Look at it on your sheet. Humility is possessing such a complete spiritual awareness and comprehension that God is, what's the next word, y'all? All that I'm brought to absolute and total nothingness before him and thus the complete abandonment of self and self-will. I, I so see God in His fullness. I see Him as all, and as a result of seeing Him as all, I, I see myself as total, absolute, nothing. And because I see myself as nothing, then it's no problem for self and self-will to be abandoned. And, and we've, we've come through if we're going to really humble ourselves before God, we've, we've begun to ask ourselves, what does it mean 
to humble ourselves before him. And we saw that there's, there's four dimensions of, of, of humility that we can find in the, in the Bible. The first reason that we are humble is, uh, let's all say it together, first reason is sin. I, I am humble because I am a sinner. L listen, when I see God in the fullness of all that he is, the first and foremost thought that I have is what I am before him. Because when you see him in the fullness of all that he is, you see him as absolutely holy. Just like Isaiah said, he's hearing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And he says, oh my goodness, when I saw it, I thought that I was, I was falling apart. And when you see God for who he is, it, it humbles you on your face before him. And we ask the question of the Gadarene maniac, what have I to do with thee? Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God. But not only does sin humble us before God, but what's the next word? Grace. Grace humbles us before God. I am humble before God because I am a saint. Check this out. You know what God did for us sinners? He gave to us His grace. And that grace took our sins and it buried them in the deepest sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. And what He did, the moment that we called on His name, by His grace, He placed us in Christ. And now the Bible says that the Father sees us the way that He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I come into the presence of God and I understand that me, at one time, a sinner before Him, and now I've experienced grace before Him. I'm even more humbled now because of that grace. Because the God of this universe would give me that kind of position before Him. And so what we saw is that what, what humbles us, even more than our condition as a sinner before God, is our position before Him as a saint. And yet, had sin never entered the picture and had grace never been necessary, we saw that there's a third reason that we are humble before God. And that is, what, say it with me, sovereignty. The very fact that God is the ruler of it all, that He is the, the creator. I'm humble because I am a, a creature. I'm just, I'm just one of, of God's creation. Oh, if you, for those of you that may have forgotten, back with the grace, it, it leads us to ask the question that Ruth asked in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 10, why have I found grace? And thine eyes seeing that I am a stranger. But sovereignty. I, I'm, I, I'm humble before God simply because I'm a creature. And we see this in the realm of eternity. Because in Revelation chapter 4, what it does is it shows us when we get to heaven. And once we get there, y'all, we get redeemed bodies. And so, listen, at that point, sin is no longer an issue. It, it's not even a possibility at that point. Sin has been removed, and it's gone, and before grace has even come into the picture, the first thing that it says in Revelation chapter 4, that we are just absolutely humbled on our face before God. That's what it says, that we, all of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come into his presence, the thing that we're, that's going to captivate us as soon as we get there is that he is the sovereign God and the most comfortable place we're going to be able to find ourselves is on our face before him. And what we're going to be saying is, you are worthy because you are the creator of all things. And I don't know what in the world we're doing here, 
because you are just so incredible and we are so absolutely nothing and we get on our face before him it leads us to ask the question that David asked in Psalm 8 and verses 3 and 4 when I consider the, the heavens when I the work of your fingers your creation he says I ask what is man that thou art mindful of him and it humbles us before him but now listen and this is the thing that was so important Laodiceans never the only thing that humbles Laodiceans is sin and, and yes it, it ought to because we do a lot of it but we'll never really fully humble ourselves before God until biblically we're humbling ourselves the way that God says that we should humble ourselves and it's not only because of sin but it's because of grace it's because of his sovereignty and yet in Philippians chapter 2 in verse 8 when it says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross and, and make sure that you get this when he humbled himself it didn't have anything whatsoever to do with him being a sinner it didn't have anything whatsoever to do with him being a recipient of grace it didn't have anything whatsoever to do with the fact that God is the creator because the Bible says that Christ is the creator of all things and he knew no sin and since he knew no sin there was no grace that was necessary and yet Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 says he humbled himself and the truth is folks we can go through all three of those and we can humble ourselves before God because we are sinners because we are saints and because we're creatures but we'll never fully have humbled ourselves until we humble ourselves for the same reason that Jesus humbled himself. And you remember what it was? The reason that Jesus humbled himself was because, and this is, this is deep, the reason he humbled himself was because he was humble. And not just he was humble, but he was the very essence of humility. It was a part of his being. It was a part of his character. It was one of his attributes. He is humility. And that's what it is. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. And so listen, if we're going to humble ourselves, the fourth reason that we do it is conformity. I'm humble because I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And listen to the exalted place that he has given those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says that he has predestined that we would be conformed to the image of his son listen God has so magnified us because we are in Christ that what he says he's gonna do is he's gonna make us like him we are his disciples we are his learners we are his followers and he says I have predetermined to do this I'm gonna make you like him and the reason that we humble ourselves before God is because of a desire in our hearts to let God be in us who he is that he is humility and I'm humble because I'm a disciple and so I asked the question that Job asked in Job 7 in verse 17 what is man that thou hast magnified him and that thou should have set thine heart upon him oh God I come before you and for the same purpose that Christ humbled himself because he is in me and because I am in him I desire to empty myself before him
And what we've talked about is that if we're ever... Oh, please, would you listen? If you're ever going to die so that you might have the power of his resurrection, we first have got to humble ourselves. And our humility is a little bit more than what it was for Christ. We humble ourselves because of sin, because of grace, because of sovereignty. But we humble ourselves because he is the essence of humility. And we have a desire to be like him. And we've talked about the importance of on a daily basis us coming before God and humbling ourselves before him because of those reasons. Getting on our face. Because again now... You can't know resurrection power until you die. You can't die until you humble yourself. And so we're coming before God and emptying ourselves and identifying as His creatures and as His disciples with that cross and saying, Oh God, I want to be obedient unto death. And so today I come and I present to you my way. I extend to you my feet to receive the nail that will crucify my way to you today help me not to go my way but your way direct my paths to your way and lord my work my will or anything that has to do with the flesh you know that lord today i come and i extend my arms and i open my hands to receive the nails that are crucified all of me and all of me doing my things to get this power i i come and i'm crucified lord i bow my head and my thoughts my my desires my, my motives, what's behind what I do and, and where I go. I, I bow myself to receive the crown of thorns that will connect me to your death. And Lord, I commit to you my spirit and I come now and I, I submit myself before you and I desire to sink down into the grave of your death, into the grave of rest, into the place where self-effort is, is, has ceased. I, I seek to come into your presence like that and what we talked about last week is that when we when we do that and we've humbled ourselves before God and, and we've we've sought to personalize and actualize the cross of Jesus Christ into our life what we what we said is and this is on your study sheet the hard part isn't expressing humility before God the hard part is exercising humility before men. Not expressing humility before God, because as Laodiceans, y'all, we're pretty good at it. The hard part becomes expressing that humility toward men. And when God measures humility, he doesn't do it based on all the things that we say and do and think when we're on our face before him in prayer. And you see, and this is where, again, as Laodiceans, we deceive ourselves because we come before God and we're saying all of these things and we're thinking all of these right thoughts and we're doing all the right things. We position ourselves in the right position to show our humility before God. Well, we should. We're bowing. Some of us are even prostrate on our face before Him. But, but what we're beginning to see here is God's not measuring our humility before Him because of the things we say and do and think. He measures it on the humility we carry with us after we get back on our feet and carry out toward the people He brings into our path in just the daily circumstances of life. You're going to know if you're really humble 
by how you live once you get up off of your face before God after saying all of those humble things. And if you want to know how humble someone is, don't listen to them when they talk to God. Listen to them when they talk to men. Because that's the way that God measures humility. And let me ask you to turn to 1 John chapter 4 for just a moment. <clears throat> let me show you something that God says over here that is very pertinent to our humility. 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> and look, look at verse 20. He says, If a man say, I love God, and listen, in Laodicea, man, all kind of people running around everywhere. I love God. They come into rooms like this and they sing, I love God. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. What I'm trying to get you to see is God is not real impressed with the things that we say, no matter how loving, no matter how humble they sound, God is not real to... <gasps> Did you hear the, the words that they just said? Did you hear the words they just sang? God is always looking at the heart. He says, if any, a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen... How can he love God whom he hath not seen? And, and we can't fully make that connection somehow in our finite minds that if I hate that guy over there that's across the room that I'm trying to make sure that our paths don't run into somehow in the course of this Sunday morning, somehow it never registers in our mind that it is a big pile of hooey when we stand in this room and we sing, I love you, Lord, but I can't stand that guy. God says, I'm sorry. I'm not impressed. And, and what, he, what he's saying here is he measures, now listen, what he's letting us know in verse 20 is he measures our love for him by how we love our brothers. And that's true, not because I think it's true. That's true because that's what God says. And, and listen now, when our actions and our words toward our brothers is spiteful and hateful and vindictive and sarcastic and demeaning, hello? Now listen, I'm not preaching to everybody else right now. I I'm talking to you. In your conversation with the people in this church, when it's sarcastic and demeaning and vindictive and spiteful and hateful, regardless of how eloquently we express to the Lord how much we love Him. God says, I don't buy it. It's a crock of baloney. And what I'm trying to get you to see here is it's the same way with humility. The proof of our humility before God is the humility that we have before men. And the reason I'm going through all of this is because I, I, I fear that in this church, as we've been talking about taking up our cross, I, I fear that as we have begun to see that if we're ever really going to do this, it's going to be humbling ourselves, and we've gone to the Word of God, and God has shown us this other, the whole new dimension of what it means to humble ourselves, and now we're all going to get real eloquent in our prayers to God, and in our position before God, and we're humbled, and we're going we're to 
do the little crying thing and we're going to feel all good about our spirituality and get up off of our face and treat our brothers and sisters in anything but a humble manner and we're going to think we're humble before God and frustrate ourselves because, well, I said the prayers that you taught us to pray. And the issue is not us saying all of this stuff. But I'm not minimizing saying all of that stuff. That's where it begins. But the proof, you're really going to know that what you said was true when you get up off your face and in real life, real circumstances of life, with real people, the people that you work in the office with, the people that you rub shoulders with on the line, you're going to know whether or not you really humbled yourself before God by the humility you express before them and exercise before them on a daily basis. And listen, that's why as you begin to go to the instruction written to the church in the New Testament, that's why every one of them, anywhere you want to slice it, they're all going to come back to, you need to humble yourself before men. You know why? Because that's how you know you've really humbled yourself before God. And the only way that you can ever get to the place to where you have truly experience the power of his death, burial, and resurrection is if you first humble yourself before God. And I wanted to cruise us through this morning the instruction that we find in the letters written to the church. And let's start in the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> and we'll pick up in verse, in verse 10. Our Lord says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Okay, now here it comes. In honor, preferring one another. Now, before you, you know, get too far away from, look back at, at verse 10 again. And what I want you to notice here is that the Holy Spirit connects humility with brotherly love. Now, I, I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but we were over there in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. I'm trying to get you to see that there's a strong connection between loving our brothers and our humility. And the, the fact of the matter is, we're going to see this in every passage that we go to. God connects brotherly love with humility. And the reason for that is, folks, you can't genuinely love someone without having genuine humility. So be watching this, this, this connection. And what God says here is, is, I want you to love your brothers with, with kind affection. Look at it. And what I mean by that is honor your brother. You know what it means to honor someone? It means, it means the same thing when God says he wants you to honor him. What, what does that mean to you when God says, I, I, honor me? It means that we revere him. It means we, we, lift, we lift him up. We, we put him at an exalted place. He doesn't mean anything different when it comes to your brothers. Hold him up. Revere Him. Put Him above yourself. 
and look at the rest of it and don't just honor him but prefer him well what does that mean it's not tough is it it's tough to live this but what it means is giving preferential treatment preferring put him before yourself put his needs before your needs Honor him, revere him, hold him up, prefer him. Put his needs above your needs. L- let me ask you something. When, when, you, when you're cold, what, what do you do for yourself? You do something to get yourself warm, don't you? You go over and hit the thermostat. You go get a little sweater, a little jacket to, to help yourself. And you do that every place except for here, right? You're, you're all cold in here every week and you can't go do the thermostat. It drives you crazy. When you get thirsty, what do you do? You go get a drink. When you're hungry, what do you do? You do something to get yourself where you ain't hungry no more. You eat. When you stink, what do you do? You go shower. You bathe. You know what? You take pretty good care of yourself, don't you? And God says, okay, I want you to have brotherly love now. And I want you to honor him, and I want you to prefer him. And you know how good a care you take for yourself? Okay, that might give you a good indication of what it means to prefer him. Put his needs before your needs. And drop down to verse 16, right here in the same chapter. And he says, be of the same mind, one toward another. Now watch this. Mind not high things and sadly enough folks that's the way that it is in Laodicea our mind is always on high things you know what our minds are always on as Laodiceans it's always on things that are gonna lift us up on things that are gonna make us look good you know what we, we love to be with the people and we like we, we love to, to uh, uh, we, we love people we like to be with the people who make who make us look good the people who we have determined are important. The people that we have determined are successful. And buddy, for them, man, we'll bend, we'll sacrifice, we'll do whatever needs to be done for them because they're somebody. And boy, I want to tell you, I look like somebody when I'm with people who are somebody. And that's what I'm, I'm all about. And God says here, listen, don't mind high things. But condescend. And listen, my Laodicean brother and sister, he's talking to us. Get off of your high horse, God's saying. Don't mind all this high trash and all the thoughts of self-promotion and self-exaltation, all the, the pride that lifts you up. Condescend. We're going to come back here, but right, right in the same chapter here, in chapter 12, go back to verse 3 for just a second. Paul says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man, listen to it, every man, woman, young person, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And I want you to notice here that the issue is how you think. Now listen, my Laodicean brother and sister, He doesn't say how you act. 
Because as Laodiceans, we've learned how to act humble. Our problem is we don't think humbly. We've got all this going on in our mind about things. And God says, now listen, watch out how you think. Every man that is among us, God says, is not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Okay, you, you got that? Don't think of yourself higher or more highly than you ought to think. That's, that's God's standard. Okay, now how are you going to obey that verse? There's something you've got to determine, right? What, what is it that you've got to determine before you can obey that verse? If God says, I don't want you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, then what do you got to determine? You, you, you got to figure out, okay, how ought I to think of myself? Okay, because I'm never going to know if I'm thinking more highly than I ought to think until I know how I ought to think of myself. So how ought I to think of myself? And you know how God answers that question in the New Testament? What he does is he takes the greatest servant other than the Lord Jesus Christ in the entire church age, the one that penned half of the New Testament. And what he does is he just, throughout the course of his writings, he shows you how Paul thought of himself. And you know how he thought of himself? He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9, I am the least... He said in Ephesians 3, 8, I'm less than the least. In 1 Timothy 1, 15, he said, I am the chief of sinners. And are, are you guys looking for this on there? It's not there. <laughs> but you, you can do it without blankies, right? Now, now I'm, afraid you, I'm afraid you missed it, and I think this is so key. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. How ought you to think? Okay, God says, well, let, let me just show you how the greatest servant in the entire church age, let me show you how he thought. He said, I am the least. I am less than the least. 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the chief of sinners. 2 Corinthians 12.11, I am nothing. Now listen, that's how you ought to think. Now, does anybody in this room really think that you are greater than the Apostle Paul? Anybody at all? I mean, we may have somebody here that's like that this morning. If so, raise your hand and we will applaud you. <laughs> I, I mean, straight up, is, nobody in this room thinks you're better than the Apostle Paul, do you? And yet, now, I'm not talking about how we act now. I'm talking about how we think. We still think we're something, don't we? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you think you're all that in a bag of chips. I'm not ta saying, you know, all of that. I, 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 all I'm saying to you is you haven't come to the place, have you, to where you are less than the least, to where you just... Nothing... Zero. You see, that's what I'm talking about. We think we're something, and I just, man, I just, God provides the greatest facials in the world, man.
especially the Laodiceans. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, you, you know what he says to us Laodicean? He gets right up in our face and he says, If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Anybody in this room other than me deceiving yourself? Because we still, we still think we got a little bit of something going on, don't we? We still think we got a little bit of something to offer to God. We still look around and we think we're a little bit better than other people. And listen, when you think that you're anything more than the least and less than the least and the chief of sinners, when you think that you're anything more than nothing, you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Work with me, y'all. And drop down to verse 16 again. Be of the same mind one toward another. You, you see, wouldn't it be great if everybody in this room just thought that I'm, I'm less than the least? No. No, I'm less than you are. Well, no, I'm less than you are. No, I'm less than you are. Wouldn't it all just be great if we all had the same mind? I, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm nothing. Because you know what would happen? None of us would mind high things. He says, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. And if you obey verse 3, you won't have any problem doing that. If you ever get to the place where you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, you have no problem there. So you can already see God's pretty clear about this humility that we exercise toward our brothers and sisters. And, and again... If you think that you've humbled yourself before God, but you still haven't come to the place where you are the least and less than the least, the chief of sinners, and absolutely nothing, you haven't really humbled yourself before God because people who have humbled themselves before God have come to the place that He is all. So I am nothing. And it doesn't matter if anybody else anywhere is, it doesn't matter what they are. What matters is who he is. And that's, that's whose presence I came in this morning. And because I saw him for who he is, I don't have any time to be even thinking about me being better than y'all. All I know is I'm just absolutely nothing. Now, is there any way I could serve you? Now turn to the next book. The book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 13, saw there in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, the connection of humility and brotherly love. Again, the reason for that is humility is at the root of love, and God shows that to us again here in the letter to the Corinthians. And of course, and I think unless you're brand new to the Bible, you know that 1 Corinthians 13 is the great love chapter. And look at what he says in the middle of verse 4. Charity, which is another way of saying brotherly love, charity vaunteth not itself. You know, it doesn't barge in the door and start demanding stuff. It, it doesn't push itself to the front. It, it doesn't have the attitude like most Laodiceans. Stop the world! Stop the world! I'm here! Everything stop, man! I'm here now! The party can begin! 
vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, it's not proud, it's not big-headed, it's humble. And look down in the middle of verse 5. Seeketh not her own. It, it, it doesn't think of itself. It thinks of others. It, it doesn't think, what's best for me? It thinks, what's best for others? And you know what? I'm afraid, I'm afraid that maybe we're going to get dull of hearing, y'all. Because we've read these verses ten trillion times. It, it seeketh not its own. Isn't that beautiful? No, it's not beautiful. Unless we live it. And I'm asking you, where's a Laodicean that lives life like that? Without vaunting itself. Without being puffed up. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about how we act. I'm talking about how we think. Seeketh not her own. And you see, in Laodicea, See, what, what, what we do is we, we think in terms of what would be best for you if what's best for you will make me look humble and loving in everybody else's eyes. So you see, in wanting what's best for you, I really want what's best for me anyway. And so I go through this whole thinking process of how to appear to be humble before you because I, in honor, I'm preferring you, but in my mind, I'm thinking, and I'm really going to look like somebody if I get that humble. Now, I realize that by making that statement, everybody's going, well, how does he know that? Because that's how I think. Do you? You know what? That's what I appreciate you about, y'all. You're honest, man. Look at the end of verse 5. Thinketh no evil. Oh, listen, y'all. Truly humble people don't think about, let's see, what would be the humble thing to do in this situation? What can I do here to sound and look humble? I, I, a, a preacher that, that I know took a missions trip. This is before we started taking missions trip. It, it intrigued me. I never forgot it. He talked about being over in India. And there was, you know, they got the holy men over there in, in India, you know. They starve themselves and they walk around like this with, you know, sackcloth and ashes and all of that. And so we wanted to take a picture of the guy. He asked him if he could take the picture. You know what the guy does before he takes the picture? He rearranges the ashes on himself and gets the look on his face of how humble he is. Hello? You know what Laodiceans do? We rearrange the ashes of our life so that we can appear to everybody like we're humble because when people think that we're humble, they think we're something. And that's what we're really after. Humble people's minds, it don't, they don't think like that. They truly don't seek their own. And, and that's, that's why verse 5 says, 
that they're not easily provoked. Now listen, you know what will just jerk your chain right now? I mean, if you're, if you're working the whole, you know, how can I appear to be humble thing? Just let whoever it is that you're trying to, to be humble before under the guise of serving them and their, their needs, just let them give off the air that this really is a very fitting thing that you would serve me because, you know, I really am better than you. So um, not my shoes, too. You know what will really jerk your chain? If you're trying to appear to be humble, you know what will make you really provoked? It is for somebody to believe what you said you believed. I, I'm less than the least. I'm nothing. Humble people aren't easily provoked. And turn over to the next instruction. Isn't this fun? Man. And we could have been at Disney World, you know? Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, look at the last part of verse 13. He says, By love, serve one another. And again, he emphasizes the fact there can be no real love without humility. I'm humble, and that's why I love you. I'm humble, therefore I, I serve you by love. That we just saw in 1 Corinthians 13. The kind that's not looking for anything. That's not barging in the door saying, Here am I, God's gift to the world. I want to serve you. Drop down to verse 26. Let us not be desirous of vain glory. And there it is again, that Laodicean pride that's secretly desirous of the pat on the back. The place of preeminence, the place of prominence, the place of, of glory, and really is the hidden motivation behind much of Laodicean service and much of Laodicean humility. We're going through all the shenanigans of humility. But we're desirous of vain glory. And Paul says in verse 26. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another. Now, now, now check it out. You see, when you desire vainglory, it's real easy for everybody else who's desiring vainglory to detect. We, we, it takes one to know one, you know? And we provoke them because they wanted the glory that we're trying to get and when they get the glory that we're wanting, look, look at the rest of the verse, we envy them. And I'm just telling you guys, as Laodiceans, God's jerking our chain here. We're desirous of vain glory. And, and there's this, do you know the feeling of that? Your nostrils fill with air. And, we, and we're like, oh, oh no, no, I can't act like that. I'm liking this a lot. I'm liking this a lot. But I can't act like I like this a lot because I'm humble. Humble people look like this. 
And God says, Hey, don't be desirous of vainglory and everybody provoking one another and envying one another because everybody's wanting this pat on the back and this preeminence. God says, Don't go there. Don't do that. Look, look at verse 25. Empty yourself. That's the only way you can be filled with the Spirit. Empty yourself. And go to the instruction to the next church. The book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And for three solid chapters, man, the Holy Spirit's just been busting our wealth in Christ and our position in Christ and all of the the wonders of the heavenly life that is to be found in Christ. And so, after coming through chapters 1 and 2 and 3 of all of this incredible stuff, now he comes to the practical section in the book in chapter 4. And watch what he says in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beseech you that you walk worthy of the location wherewith you're called. You know what he's saying? Listen. Based on this exalted position that we all have in the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, because of that, oh, you make sure that your walk down here on the earth is characteristic of somebody who's seated up there in heaven. Well, how is that walk, Paul? Verse 2, with all lowliness. And, and, and check out every word now, not just with some lowliness. Not just with a lot of lowliness. With all lowliness. Listen, all the lowliness that such an exalted position demands. Because you're in Christ, and because you're seated in the heavenlies, and because you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, all of these truths that he's been laying out in the first three chapters, he's saying because God has given you that kind of an exalted place, oh my, when you walk down here on the earth, it ought to humble you with all lowliness. It's like what we were talking about before with grace. When you see that that he has allowed you to come into his, presen his presence, and he sees you the way that, that he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. You're not sitting around going, yeah, yeah, check it out, yeah. Holy and unblameable and unreprovable. No. We see ourselves in that position and we're on our face before God and saying, Oh God, why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing that I am a stranger? How in the world did I ever get a position like this rather than lifting us up with pride it humbles us and that's what he's saying walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called this is all true of who you are in Christ now walk like somebody like that with all lowliness go on in verse 2 and meekness and long suffering and forbearing one another in love hey, now listen you know why we're not meek and patient with people. You know why people drive us absolutely crazy? You know why we have so little tolerance for them? You know why we have so little forbearance for them? Look back at the first part of the verse. It's because we don't have all lowliness. Listen. We have enough lowliness to bring us to say all kinds of 
wonderfully sounding words to God on our face before Him in prayer. We've got enough loneliness to bring us to that. We just don't have enough to get into the relationships of life that we have and just the, the real living of life with other people in the body of Christ. We, we've got enough to say all this stuff to God. We just don't have enough to make us meek. We just don't have enough to make us long-suffering and patient. We just don't have enough to be forbearing. And there it is again at the end of verse 2. We just don't have enough to be loving. You see, to do all of those things, it requires all lowliness. And drop down in the same book to chapter 5 and verse 21. He, he says as he, as he writes to this local church in Ephesus, Chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And we talked about this, this several weeks ago. Remember that, that humility doesn't begin and isn't the result of, of seeing yourself and, and seeing your sin before God as it really is. It begins very simply with seeing God for who He is. And you see God for who He really is. And look, look at the end of verse 21. You will fear Him. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And people today want to tell us, well, that, you know, that word fear there, you know, God doesn't want us to, you know, be afraid of Him. It means reverence. It means that we're to reverence Him. It means that we're to hold Him in awe. And I'll give you that. I believe that. We ought to reverence Him. We ought to hold Him in awe. But let me just tell you something else. It also means you ought to be scared out of your wits before God. It means that. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel is caught up to heaven and he says, Oh my goodness, when I saw it, I fell on my face. Isaiah is caught up in Isaiah chapter 6 and he said, Oh my goodness, when I, when I caught it all, man, I said, Woe is me, for I'm done. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm falling apart. John saw him in Revelation chapter 1 and he said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet and I was so freaked. I was afraid to move a muscle. I was afraid to even breathe. I fell at his feet as dead. And listen, when you see God for who he really is, man, you fear him. And when you fear him, you are so... You are so humbled before Him. You don't have any problem whatsoever submitting to Him. Amen? The reason we have such a hard time submitting to Him is because we never see Him the way that He is. Because if we saw Him the way that He is, we'd fear Him and we'd be so humbled, we would submit. But let me tell you something else. When you really fear Him, you'll be so humbled, you won't have any problem. Verse 21 says submitting to anybody else in the body either. Oh, you'll be submissive toward God, but listen, when you really get humble, you won't have any problems submitting to others in the body. That's why he says, he, he, he couldn't have said it any other way, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of of God, and let me just ask you, would you say that you are submitted? Would you say that you live a life of subjection to the other people of this body? 
And it's going to be real hard for some of you because you have no connection really whatsoever with this body other than the fact you're a covenant member. But there's no involvement to where you could ever even be in a place to where you could submit to one another. It doesn't happen in the big room when I'm preaching on Sunday morning. Let let me ask you this. This will get a little bit closer to home. Would the other people of this church say, yes, this is a person that is submitted to the other people of this church? Let's take it even a little bit further. Would God say that you're somebody who is submitted to the other people in this church? Let, Let me ask you this. Is there anybody that could confront you about an area of sin in your life? Is there anybody in this church that could confront you like that and it would tick you off if they did? I mean, what if it's somebody that's got more areas to work on than you do. I I mean, are are you so living in the fear of God, as he says in verse 21, that you are so submitted to Him that if somebody did point out an area of sin or blindness in your life, you could submit to that confrontation and be thankful for it because you just so desire to be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and it doesn't matter who it comes from. And you know what I'm finding, y'all? It's, it's a whole lot easier to be humble before God in prayer than it is to be humble before men. And yet, this is what God is telling us that is our call on our life. Turn to the next one, the book of Philippians. Some of you newer to the Bible. How... How many letters are there to the churches? (laughs) Philippians chapter 2. We're going to leave 1 Thessalonians alone, so there's only two more. Okay, now this is is where the whole discussion on humility started. With with our Lord humbling Himself in verse 8. And and you know what? The whole passage is really summed up in verse 5. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You have the the same mindset in you that he had in him. The mindset of humility. And he says back in verse 3, let nothing. You got it? Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Okay, now look at the verse, because the implication of this verse is, if you don't have the lowliness of mind or the humility that would cause you to view other people above you, what he's saying is you'll end up doing things, striving to put yourself in a position above them. And he says, listen, don't let anything in this church be done through strife or vainglory. Don't be trying to step on anybody's neck to get a higher position in somebody's eyes or somebody's mind. But listen, everywhere you go with every person in the body, look at everybody else and esteem them better than yourself. And you see, this is the plague of of Laodicea. People in the church doing the same thing that they used to do when they were in the world. 
jockeying for position, striving, stepping on people's necks if they have to, doing whatever is necessary to somehow get to the top of the heap in the church. And we, you know, we look at the disciples as they're making their way to the upper room with the Lord Jesus Christ and we dog them big time, man, because here they are going to the upper of the room where the Lord is going to just break it out for them about what's going to happen to him on that cross and how he's going to take the sin of the world and be crucified and, and all of that. And as they're on their way, man, they're all jockeying, they're all fighting one another about which one of them is the greatest. And we look at them and we say, oh my goodness, that is just so horrendous. And yet, as Laodiceans, we do the same exact thing. We just don't do it with words like the, 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 the disciples we do, we're doing. We do it in our hearts and we act so appalled at these guys. And like Paul was saying back there to, to the Galatians, our hearts are desirous of vain glory and we have learned to mask those desires, un, those desires under the guise of humility and, and, and service. But Paul says here, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And, I, and I think about this now. Listen, there are some people that when we think about them, we don't have any problem whatsoever fulfilling that verse. I mean, we look at their life and their walk with God is just so unbelievable. And I mean, these people are, are so holy and these people have got so much wisdom and oh my goodness, the gifts they have, the abilities they have. I mean, we just feel honored to be in their, in their presence and we don't have any problem whatsoever esteeming them better than ourselves. But I want you to be real honest about something. Okay, this is tough for Laodiceans. Are there not people that come to your mind? People who are less holy than you? People who don't have as much wisdom as you have? People who don't have the gifts and abilities that you have? That you think to yourself in your in in our Laodicean minds and we think to ourselves, okay, I'm 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 all about this this humble thing, but I mean without going through the theatrics of some false humility, how am I gonna genuinely esteem those people better than I do myself? I mean, is this has God left us here to all act this out? Or does he really mean that we ought to be able to look at every other person and esteem them better than we do ourselves? And now listen, I'm, I'm not bringing this up because I've got the easy out question. No, this is, this is tough stuff. The truth is, y'all, the very fact that the question comes into our minds, and I'm the one that's addressing it right now, it came into mine, but the very fact that it comes into our minds shows us how far out we still are from understanding what true biblical humility really is. Because do you remember the definition of humility that we talked about? Just listen. Humility is possessing such a complete spiritual awareness and comprehension that God is all. That I'm brought to absolute and total 
nothingness before him. And that nothingness brings me to the complete abandonment of self and self-will. And listen, people who genuinely, genuinely see themselves as nothing and have abandoned self in the fullness of all that God is, the reality is, folks, they no longer compare themselves with others. It doesn't come into their mind. You know why? It doesn't need to. Because in, there's not, in their nothingness, there's nothing they're trying to be. There's no position that they're trying to attain. There's, there's no one's pecking order that they're trying to fall into. There's no one's esteem that they're trying to gain. You know why? Because they're nothing. And their nothingness makes them free. They're free. They don't, they're not involved with the striving. They're not, they're not involved in, in the jockeying. And, and it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, listen, it can be the, the weakest, the most feeble-minded, the most unworthy person in the church. And if it's a truly humble person, you know what? They can still, toward that person, they can still be kindly affection toward them in brotherly love. They can still honor them. They can still prefer them. They can still condescend to those men of low estate that are just like themselves. They wouldn't think of vaunting themselves or being puffed up or seeking anything for themselves. They wouldn't think evil of them. They, they wouldn't be easily, easily provoked by them. They'd be able to serve them. They'd be patient with them. They'd forbear with them. They'd be able to submit to them. You know why? Because they've been brought to such a place of nothingness before God and have so lost themselves in the completeness of all that God is, they genuinely esteem everybody else better than themselves. Andrew Murray said, the humble man feels no jealousy or envy he can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before Him. He can bear to hear others praised and Himself forgotten. Because in God's presence, He has learned to say with Paul, I am nothing. Let me ask you something. How many truly humble people do you know? And I'm afraid that because, I, I, I don't know about you, I don't know any. And, and I'm afraid that some of us are going to be thinking, well, you know, this, this makes for great preaching and all that kind of stuff, but all it does is put everybody on a guilt trip because... The fact is, there ain't any way anybody's ever going to be able to live like that. Let me ask you, has that thought crossed your mind this morning? And if that's true, I just want to ask you, 
Why in the world did the Holy Spirit inspire the Apostle Paul to say what he said in verse 3? Let each esteem others better than themselves. I mean, do you really think God's going to command something of you that He's not willing to empower you to do? And, and I want to promise you something. He is willing. The question is, are we? And, and listen, you, you know what? You know what it keeps most of us Laodiceans from ever being humble? We want to be humble. We just don't want to be too humble. You got me? Oh yeah, I'm all about that thing. But now, what, what, now how far does this go though? And, and you see, as long as we're asking how far it goes, it ain't going to happen. So what happens is God is at work in our lives at a time such as this. I, 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 hope, that you're, I hope you're tracking. He, he's trying to, to bring us to have, as verse 5 says, the same mind in us that was in our Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? We, we, we get so caught up asking all kinds of spiritual sounding questions when it comes. To, we, we're, we're trying to figure out all the ins and outs of what humility is and isn't and what humility does and doesn't do. And what, well, what if this and, and, and you're in this situation and this happens and what, what, if, what if that? And you know what? We never just completely abandon ourselves to humility. You know what, you know what Jesus did, y'all? He didn't ask any questions. He didn't reason it all out. He didn't put any qualifications or limitations on it. You know what he did? It's in verse 8. It's real simple. He humbled himself. Unreservedly. He humbled himself. Listen. Unto death. And that's the call in all of our lives, y'all. To humble ourselves unto death. That's what verse 8 is all about. And we'll do this real quickly. Just go to the next book, the book of Colossians, and we'll, we'll quit. Look at verse 10. Paul says, we, we, we put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created Him, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. There's no distinction because none of us are anything, right? We're, we're all nothing, but Christ is all. And check this out, and He's in all of us. Verse 12, put on therefore. Because nobody around here is anything, and He's everything. Therefore... Put on the, uh, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on lots of Bible doctrine and lots of Bible verses and, and lots of church attendance and lots of church activities. Now, all those things are, are, are important, but that's not what he says. We've got a church full of people that put on all that. But he says, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. Just be merciful to people. Listen, some of you that have been around here the longest, 
and know the most doctrine and can do all the ins and outs of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and all of Lucifer before the fall and you got all that stuff down and you know what some of you are the folks that are the least merciful to other people in the body put on he says kindness just be kind to people Some of us that know so much around here have got our nose so high in the air that we'd, we've forgotten to put on kindness. Humbleness of mind. And, and here's the issue. You know why we're not merciful toward others in the body? You know why we're not kind? Just with plain old, just simple kindness? It's because we've not put on humbleness of mind. And you know what the lack of humbleness of mind is, y'all? pride and you know why we're not merciful and kind and all, all of this stuff bottom line is we think we are better than we are and, and the proof of it would be just just let somebody that we think is somebody come around and, and just watch how how unbelievably kind we'll be to them how merciful we can be toward those people that, that we hold up as, as something. And he says, listen, put on humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And what I'm wanting you to see is that, listen, you can do, you can do a lot of good things you can know a, a lot of, of wonderful truths. You can know a lot of wonderful doctrines. You can have hidden your your mind a lot of verses. You can say a lot of good things to God in prayer. And you may even think, because you got all that going, you may think that you're humble before God, but none of those things are the measuring stick that God uses. He measures our humility before Him by the humility that we exercise toward our brothers and sisters. We're in danger of becoming proud because of what we know. And God's not impressed. You know what impresses God? When people act like His Son. And some of us need to just climb down off of where we think we are and get ourselves humble before God before we wake up to find ourselves a whole lot further away from God than we thought because we're going to find out that that pride comes before a Lord I pray that you'd help us to not deceive ourselves into thinking that one thing is true about us when when you know that something else is is true Lord help us not to miss the importance of coming before you and emptying ourselves and humbling ourselves before you.
But Lord, help us not be, to be deceived into thinking that what we say and do and think at that moment is reflective of what is real. Help us to look to see what is real and how we live our life toward our brothers and sisters. Help us all, even now, while all this is fresh in our mind, to do just what Colossians just told us, to put on humbleness of mind. Not theatrics of humility, but humbleness of mind, where we genuinely think the way the Lord Jesus Christ thinks and esteem others better than ourselves. And Lord, for those that are here this morning that have never received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, I pray that they would humble themselves before you this morning. Pray that they would no longer hold on to their life their works, their church attendance, their baptism. I pray that you'd bring them to a place of such humility that they see that you are our only hope, that you alone are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to you, comes to the Father, but through you. And may they relinquish all of self, all of pride, all of works to you today. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as our service is concluded, Pastor Joe and Pastor Bob are going to position themselves on either side of the front of this room. And we invite you today to come and talk to one of these men and say, you know, I don't really know for sure that I understand exactly all of this about what it means to receive Christ and come into a relationship with God, but that's what I want. If you just come, they'll, they'll have somebody that will take a Bible, take you to a private room and show you today.